welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Jarrell Couch. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about the generational wealth gap. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. In 2014, a massive ocean heat wave along the western coast from Alaska to Mexico killed off 91% of sunflower sea stars, the predator of purple sea urchins. Hmm. Purple sea urchins eat kelp, and when they were left unchecked, kelp forests all along the coast, especially off the California coast, disappeared entirely. To understand why this is such a big deal, kelp forests store massive amounts of carbon dioxide, provide a home for more than 800 species, protect coastlines from storms and waves, and can even be used as a viable biofuel. But during this oceanic heat wave, 95% of the kelp forests were wiped out in a 200-mile stretch of the California coast. Now, this may seem like another devastating story about the effects of global warming, and it is, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. In a collaboration with scientists from the Nature Conservancy, the University of California at LA, the University of California at Santa Barbara, and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, a kelp forest mapping tool was created from satellite images for from over the past several decades. This tool took years to build, and it accurately identifies where kelp forests are at risk and where kelp restoration needs to take place. For example, the mapping system is currently acting as an early warning system for Monterey Bay in Central California, where the kelp forest has seen some recent decline. On the Northern California coast, however, the mapping tool has been incredibly helpful for scientists as it has determined that some kelp forests have made a comeback last year. You can visit the mapping tool at kelpwatch.org. President Biden and the Justice Department announced new steps Monday aimed at combating gun crimes, including a rule targeting the manufacture and sale of so-called ghost guns or homemade firearms that lack serial numbers and are difficult to trace. The new rule will, will require ghost guns, which can be made with 3D printers or sold as assembly kits to be treated like other firearms made and sold in the U.S. It's going to help save lives, reduce crime, and get more criminals off the streets, Mr. Biden said in remarks at the White House. If you commit a crime with a ghost gun, expect federal prosecution. The president also called on Congress to do more to address gun violence, including by passing universal background checks and banning assault weapons in high-capacity magazines. I know it's controversial, but I got it done once, he said. Democratic efforts in Congress to enact stricter gun laws have languished for years. Under the rule published by the Justice Department, commercial manufacturers of ghost gun assembly kits will now be required to include serial numbers. Sellers will also need to be federally licensed, run background checks before selling a homemade gun kit, and keep records of the purchase for as long as they are in business. The current rule allows sellers to purge records after 20 years. I think we know how difficult it is to get any gun control legislation passed through Congress. Many gun control activists and organizations have criticized the Biden administration for not doing enough on gun control thus far in his presidency. So Terrell, what do you think of these uh, new actions against so-called ghost guns? It's unfortunate that our congressional leadership can't push through comprehensive gun reforms, right? Like today, as we're having this conversation, New York is reeling after a um, mass shooting in a subway system. We, we live in a society where that conversation is not out of the norm any longer. And that the country 
is becoming, I don't even know what the, what the word is, not immune, but it, non, they're not being faced by it. And it's just, it's an unfortunate standard. And it's unfortunate that the White House and the Justice Department have to find these maneuvers to at least begin to combat gun violence in the country, knowing that it isn't going to go the full way. Um, it's also terrifying to think about the fact that this term ghost guns used to be commonplace for so long and individuals could just build a gun at home or print one in on a 3d printer without a serial number. Um, so yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, but here we are. Yeah. I guns in this country are like kind of out of control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not even kind of, they are. I just, um, It's such a, especially, it just feels like, especially, I mean, I know it's been happening a long time, but it feels like, you know, with the rise of where the Republican Party is at right now and stuff, like the absolute refusal by one side, for the most part, to do anything about like gun control. We're not asking to get rid of guns, but you know what? If you talk to people who watch Fox News, they think Democrats are after your guns and they're after the Second Amendment. And that's just not true. And like the Second Amendment allows you to have a gun under cer- certain certain circumstances, and like we should make sure that like guns are well regulated and that they're not in the wrong hands of people and stuff. And these ghost guns are a serious issue. So, I for one like wish that Congress could do more about this, and I wish that they could actually get like legislation on the table, um, but they can't. So you know, I'm glad that uh, it's kind of like a I, I'll take what we can get for now situation. And let us start like really, truly talking about the Second Amendment in a a more well-informed way, right? It's not Malicious just... baby. Yeah, it's not just <laughs> the right to bear arms. The actual text says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Like, it's not this idea that everyone can just run around rampant with guns. We do have to put in context and we do have to understand that at that point in time, in that space, uh, the the country was reeling from what do we, what could we potentially be seeing? What could we have to worry about when it comes to foreign threats and other things that can threaten our sovereignty? We as a country have very much moved past that. And now when we talk about militias, we talk about them in the context of Idaho, where those militias are actually more of a threat to the country than a support of it. Like we do... Yeah. Not well regulated. Maybe I'm just a little bit in this because of our efforts in civics failed, but like we do need to stop talking about the Second Amendment as just the right to bear arms. There, there is an intentional language in there that gives you the implications and gives you what you need to understand of what they were talking about when it's infringement. And yes, you can argue that the Supreme Court has failed miserably, but that's another thing for another time. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm actually like, you know, growing up in North Idaho, like everyone has a gun, whether you're hunting or just to have one. And I've never really cared. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really care if people have a gun, but I just think there's a lot of ways. I, it just feels like there's a lot of, and I know this is like political talk, but it just feels like there's a lot of common sense, like gun reform that we can just do. Yeah. And even the bare minimum stuff will save lives. Like background checks, this ghost gun stuff. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm glad that something's happening on this. Um, I'm sad Congress can't do shit about it. Uh, for whatever reason, Congress is just 
fucking dumb sometimes with some of this stuff, but um, you know, I'm glad Biden's taken some initiative here. Yeah. And I mean, it's also important to realize, especially as we're getting to midterms that um, it's not Congress and I, I should slap myself on the hand for saying it that way. It's the fact that there's an entire party that is holding comprehensive gun laws and any common sense practices. Um, but let's check out the international fold. On Tuesday, President Vladimir Putin once again assured the people of Russia that the deadly invasion of Ukraine is aimed at protecting the people of eastern Ukraine and to, quote-unquote, ensure Russia's own security. This comes with a vow from the Russian leader um, that this offensive will continue until the goals are fulfilled, equating the ongoing peace talks with Ukraine to be a dead end. The international community has continued to isolate Moscow as a consequence to the almost two-month-long war. Last week, Russia was officially suspended from the United Nations Human Rights Council for its gross and systematic violations and abuses of human rights, as well as violations of international human rights law, with a vote of 93 to 24, with 58 nations abstaining. Since that vote, Moscow has vowed in bolstered language for the consequences of Western leaders, while Western leaders are continuing to explore diplomatic avenues with the Kremlin, um, especially following growing concerns around the use of chemical weapons in Ukraine. Leaders like Prime Minister Boris Johnson of the United Kingdom have gone as far as to say all options will be on the table if Russia were to cross this metaphorical red line involving chemical weaponry. I know last week we felt a little bit more hopeful of potential avenues um, for the end of this conflict, but with this conference, press conference, whatever you want to call it, from President Putin and the atrocities that happened in Bocha, Caleb, uh, what are your reactions to this? What, what are, how do you process what we're hearing? Well, I mean, I, I think it's very much expected from Vladimir Putin. I mean, he's trying to save face at the very least. Mm-hmm. I, I, like when we haven't actually like I think updated too much um, or maybe it's just the week feels long, but it feels like we haven't updated too much or gone into depth about the Ukraine war in the past couple of weeks. But like Russia has um, basically retreated from from the capital city of Ukraine, Kiev and Chernobyl and all that and is refocusing its efforts just on the like Donetsk regions in the east of Ukraine um, uh, in which there is already like a separatist kind of war backed by Russia going there since 2014. And so that's like a big, like that's a big step forward and especially um, props to Ukraine's military for being able to hold off Russia instead of just bowing to them as they enter the country. Um, So I think, I think Putin and, you know, We've gotten so many reports about how Putin has been more and more isolated, has not consulted the right people. And when he does, those people are too scared to say something that doesn't align with his belief. I read an article actually just today out of the Washington Post where Putin believes he is the number one expert on Ukraine. Obviously, that's fucking wrong Mm -hmm. (laughs) because if he was the number one, his number one expert, Vladimir Putin over here just went off and said, yeah, Ukraine is going to fall in a couple of days if we invade. And that did not happen. Um, so I think, I think Putin is very much to an extent he knows it's not working. Right. And 
I don't necessarily know what that means for the for the Russians and the war effort here. I don't know if he still tries to keep going, even though they've refocused their efforts over in the East region. Mm-hmm. But he's trying to at least come back and say, hey, at least I got this. And honestly, like, I mean, obviously we're rooting for Ukraine, but I really hope that Ukraine doesn't um, doesn't put options on the table that that Russia has wanted all along from this. I hope I hope Ukraine is able to keep those regions of Eastern Ukraine. And I hope that they don't um, give in to Russia's demands of them and never ever joining the EU or even NATO, to be honest. I, I think Ukraine's in a good position. Obviously, um, Russia still has the bigger military and and they just hired a new general for the job or not hired, but put a new one in yeah. the job. So it's a, basically what I'm trying to say is this is expected from Putin. And he's trying to come home with some sort of victory that he can twist. And he hasn't gotten that yet. Um, so I think, I don't know about the chemical weaponry part. I really hope to God he never uses that. Wouldn't surprise me though, if he did. Um, but I hope that even if he uses it, like Ukraine in the West still sees victory here. Going around the globe, United Kingdom Prime Minister Boris Johnson and their finance minister will face fines for their breach of COVID-19 restrictions um, from the Metropolitan Police. The French presidential election will head to a runoff between Macron and Le Pen. Pakistan's parliament elects opposition lawmaker, and I apologize if I butcher this name, Shabazz Sharif, um, as prime minister on Monday, following the dramatic ousting of their premier, Imran Khan, um, by the opposition party through a vote of no confidence. And Sri Lanka's central bank suspends all external debt payments as the nation recovers from the COVID-19 pandemic. And we'll be right back. And we're back. Okay, y'all. Today, I really wanted to continue off of our student loan conversation from last week and talk more broadly about the wealth gap between generations, specifically when it comes to millennials, which is the generation born between 1981 and 1996. According to Bloomberg, the millennial generation is the largest in the workforce with around 72 million current members, but they only control about 4.6% of the wealth in the US. Baby boomers, on the other hand, own about $60 trillion of wealth, which is the most out of any generation. Um, and it's, it's also double of what Gen X owns and more than 10 times as much as millennials own. Now, I do want to make a quick point that it is generally expected and pretty usual that an older generation will have more wealth. I mean, baby boomers, for example, are retiring or yeah. approaching um, retirement and have worked much longer, mm-hmm. have older retirement accounts, gained wealth from their parents as they have passed away, and much more. However, millennials are quite unique in this instance because the data points to something troubling, that millennials are far behind in wealth accumulation compared to previous generations at the same age. Shocking. Take, for example, baby boomers. When the median age of the boomers was 34 years old, that generation had control of over 21% of the wealth in this country. Whereas millennials right now at a median age of 32 have only 4.6% of the wealth in this country. Millennials would have to quadruple their wealth accumulation in only two years to catch up. So then the question becomes, why are millennials in this position? 
there's a lot of factors, and I think we'll just touch on a couple of them today. Yeah. Uh, millennials are unique in the fact of the multiple crises that they have had to face um, in their wealth generating development phases of life, specifically, uh, most notably the 2008 financial crisis that saw the single greatest median income fall since uh, 1967. That fall continued all the way to 2012. At the time of this, the oldest millennial was about 27, meaning many were just moving into the workforce. The financial crisis saw millennials have to accept lower wages and job losses while their debt remained unchanged, despite the promise that a degree would allow them to work and be able to pay off their debts. And can I add one piece to that too? Absolutely. Especially coming off of the point that you made about baby baby boomers. Um, for that generation, as you just mentioned, the oldest millennial was 27. I, being a millennial at that time, was what 11, maybe 12. Um my family was deeply impacted by that. And oh, that same. is a generational wealth piece that can further implicate and impact the development and growth that millennials, our generations will see. Yeah, no, uh, my family was pretty impacted by that too. I mean, uh, for a moment there, it was, it was pretty scary. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And I was, I was much younger than you were. And I remember um, it was just a scary time. Chill on me trying to act like I'm ancient or something. I mean, <laughs> no, <laughs> Uh, uh, anyways, continuing on due to the rising costs of attending college and an increased amount of jobs that require a college degree, millennials had more student debt than any other generation and had less money to pay for it than any other generation. When the 2008 crisis hit, when it came to buying a house and starting a family, which are typical indicators of wealth generation in America, the financial crisis brought about a large increase in mortgage rates, denying many of the opportunity to become homeowners. This financial crash had long sweeping effects, including less millennials owning homes than any other generation at the age of 30. And now as home prices soar, many millennials don't think they will ever be able to be homeowners. About 20% believe that right now. Wow. Raising kids is also a big life decision that many millennials have had to push off or give up entirely. The cost of raising a kid to age 18 is estimated to be well over $250,000 and inflation has only made it worse. If millennials were unable to buy a home because of the economic events that had taken place before, then raising kids is surely not something feasible now with the higher inflation from the pandemic. Hmm. Terrell, I really want to have this conversation with you, not only because you are a millennial who has potentially experienced some of these events that have led your generation to this point, but also because your generation is the next generation that will hopefully find more power in our political systems in the coming years. What is your initial take on all the stuff I've just talked about in your own experiences? Yeah. um, It's funny you mention or highlight the concept that we might have more power when you look at Congress and the average age is 68. I, I mean that because naturally we will, even if it takes decades. Yeah. I guess my, my fear is the millennial generation is on course to be like our parents. Um, or at least, well, no, I think most millennial parents probably fall into this age range. Um, like your, um, Reverend Warnocks who are such an important part to the political system, but because his parents generation has still been in power, he's now reached an age where the idea of being in Congress is questioned, um, your Obama's where it's celebrated that he is one of the youngest presidents we've ever had, but in all actuality, he was in his forties and he just turned 50, um, a year, two years ago. So it's, it's a lot of those pieces that I, I struggle with because 
say we do see the end of the Pelosi generation, my question then becomes, will the Warnock war will the Warnock generation kind of step into that space? And based on how long life expectancy is, will they end up taking up so much of that space that the Ossoffs don't see real true power until they're in their 60s? Um, that's, and that's because we've just shifted the paradigm for so long. I know it's a little off topic, but Congress, I felt like there's not term limits, but it was never meant to, to be only have it was never meant to be this way yeah. and our country would look so much different if it was more balanced between just even just i'm not even talking about race here i'm talking about generations yeah and by the way just to make a quick point with all the stats that i told everyone it's way worse for people within the generation who are not white yeah way worse, worse. and that's <laughs> i Maybe many of you would say we can't have that conversation without talking about that. And don't worry, we will. Um, we're just we're just going over. Uh, 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 we're taking a broad look at just generational wealth compared to other generations at the moment. Yeah, and I would add to that point too. It's important to recognize, like uh, from my perspective, right? While I might not explicitly speak to my ethnicity or sexuality or any of those pieces that um, are not what this country has deemed to be uh, the average or the normal of a white male. When I talk about my experience and when I speak to these things, that is always accompanied in it, right? Like, mm-hmm. yes, we might not explicitly hit on the disparities that we see um, across ethnicities. However, there is a common knowledge that we all have that those disparities exist, that those are problems that this country has continued to struggle with. And uh, coming back to that piece of only 20% of um, this generation feeling that they can be homeowners and even fewer feeling like it's appropriate for them to raise a child. I, I do think back to um, the experiences that the millennial generation that I've, I've had, we've, seen a once in a lifetime um, economic recession. We've seen a once in a lifetime pandemic. We've seen all of these historic factors culminate into our understanding and perceptions of the world. And it's irresponsible, in my opinion, to try to ignore those. Um, I've gotten into some very deep conversations with family members about having kids and been very upfront and honest of building an economy where that makes sense. I have never seen a functional economy. When I really think about my entire lifespan, I have never seen a functional economy. I've never seen an economy that supported the average man. I've never seen an economy that gave way to positive um, family units and, and family growth. Not in the sense that there haven't been handouts or all of these pieces that you might hear from a conservative uh, notion, but really, truly. I think back to, and I know I bring this up often on this this podcast, I think back to Joe Biden's um, State of the Union speech, where he mentioned capitalism without competition is just exploitation. And those words have resonated with me so much because that's the only form of capitalism I've ever been able to see. Even after the recession, when Congress acted quickly to bail out industries, it was 
the banks. It was your automotive industries. It was these, it were, or it was whichever word I'm looking for here, those executives that were handling it and, and not comfortable, but it wasn't my generation that was getting ready to enter the workforce. It wasn't my generation that saw the FDR level um, response to an economic downturn that said, work in the Tennessee River Valley and help us build an infrastructure. This will give you work experience so that you can get a job later. It wasn't the, you're an artist, you have a creative mind. We're going to have you paint mosaics across the state so that it's more attractive and more interesting for people to come to. We have not been that kind of country in generations. So listening to all of these statistics, I'm not surprised because uh, in the simplest way, we've the millennial generation has never seen an economy that fosters this understanding of, of growth and our need to participate in it. Yeah. And I think what makes this really hard, um, is that, you know, you see the response to the 2008 financial crisis in bailing out those massive banks and industry. And it's like, okay, so those guys got helped, but everyone else who is kind of fucked for a job or for a lower wage and can't pay off the debt anymore because of that. Well, you gave, if, if you think that, if you think that, well, all you have to do is hard work and stuff. Don't get me wrong. I think hard work is part of it. I think the American dream is not something that should be, or should, I don't know if should be is the right word, but I don't mm-hmm. think it's something that's handed to you regardless, but you know, you helped out the big companies, right? You gave them the helping hand when they couldn't pay their debts, when they made mistakes, but you didn't do that for any of the average Americans who probably needed it most at the time. Yeah. And look, if you're going to argue with us and say, well, you know, you, you ha- those banks had to stay operational or the automotive industry had to stay operational for whatever reason. Okay. Then you should have just done both. Hmm. You know, I, I don't know. It's it's complicated, and I'm sure there's there's big economic reasons for bailing out them. But why didn't you help out the, uh, the average American with that? And you know, me, I'm someone who is uh, I'm on the cusp. You know, I said till 1996. I was born in 97, so I am the oldest Gen Z, pretty much, that's currently alive. I'm 24. 24 so you're going to be the 27 year old when someone later makes another podcast about this and it's like, oh yeah, yeah. At 27, they were in a, po- a pandemic, pretty much. <laughs> well, hopefully, it's not going to be that much of a pandemic by 27. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, it'll just be the fucking Great Recession Part Two. But <laughs> that's a prediction. I hope I'm wrong about. Um, but I think that like there's a lot that comes with generational wealth. And I've only highlighted a couple things. Um, But I think that a lot of people do discredit like how much that crisis really affected people. And I'm not, I'm not like saying that as like, I'm not trying to call out ignorance here. It's not really what I'm trying. Well, I mean, you know, people who are like wealthier for sure. Yeah. I mean, like I remember, like I, I actually do like very clearly remember like my mom saying we can't live the way that we used to, like in that moment of time, like it was scary. Like, like if things had, if things had gone even just a little bit worse, like I'm not sure that my family would be in the position that they're in anymore. Yeah. I mean, from my own personal narrative, uh, my father lost his job in the recession and I remember I remember how my family tried to spin it of 
oh, he's just going to be home more. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. within a couple months, we had just built this brand new house. So there was a same huge, actually. There was a huge. <laughs> that was tough. Um, housing issue that was coming up of we're paying a mortgage on this um not to show it's actually so funny or, that that's actually hilarious right like <laughs> not to show or highlight my own um privilege from my childhood but like it was a million dollar house there was mm-hmm. a very sizable mortgage that was being paid on and at that time because we were trying to be aggressive yeah anyway. um and by 2003 2004 somewhere in that range my father had moved to Virginia because that was the only place he could find a job um, that could provide the uh, the living that was necessary. We were moving out of the house that we had built and I had now lived in for a few years and moving into a smaller apartment um, because we couldn't afford anything differently. And I spent several years with my father living in Virginia and my mom and I living in Michigan. Like Those have broader implications. And because of the deficit that it caused speaking to that generation generational wealth piece that house very well could have been something for my future of we Mm -hmm. have this property we have this piece it can continue to grow equity and move forward but again speaking to racial divides that recession very well very much impacted african-americans more than any other ethnicity in this country yeah and because there's already a generational gap in property ownership amongst African-Americans, you got to see that be exploited in that space. New homeowners who were of African-American descent did see a increasingly um, aggressive and problematic uh, foreclosure rate because they were the ones that the banks were giving those inflated numbers to saying, oh yeah, you can afford this house yeah. when in all actuality they couldn't. So it, it, it does have this broader piece, right? Yeah. And that kind of look, I, this is just such an interesting conversation because depending on what generation you're from, you're going to have a way different outlook on it. And mm-hmm. I think that's okay because you know, it's different times. Every decade really is just a different time in general. And like, you know, I've talked to people who are much older than me in, in later generations. And, you know, they're back then the mood was, you know what, the American dream was there, but you really had to work hard for it. And that was kind of what the vibe was. I think the issue is that not that millennials don't work hard. I think the issue is that they've been, there's so many things that have happened out of their control. And when they've been promised one thing and then the financial crisis hits and then suddenly, oh my God, the next decade on, you don't have the wages you were (laughs) fucking promised in college to pay off your debt and live a good financially healthy life. And so I kind of wanted to get your take on kind of why some of the later generations, like the later generations I've talked to, the mood seems to be that if you take on debt, then you have to pay it and you have to figure it out. And you shouldn't expect or even receive a handout from the government, if you even want to call it that, I guess, Mm -hmm. Um, whether that's like for student loans or something else. And like, I just wanted to ask what you think of that argument specifically. Well, I think you already addressed it, right? I kind of did. I I latch on to that last piece that you you mentioned of the the millennial generation and younger generations were sold this idea that you get an education, you're going to make a higher wage. You'll be able to pay off the loans. I mean, it's still being pieces. sold. 
Yeah, but universities fucking cost a shitload now. But I, I think <laughs> that's the difference, right? I do think that the millennial generation was being sold this nuclear family American, American dream idea of here's the path that you have to take to get to the end goal because at least speaking on behalf of my generation in the space, we did just come out of the Clinton years where a lot of families were seeing extra money in their bank accounts. The country was seeing a surplus. So there was this, this ease to feel like, yeah, follow the nuclear family pipeline and you'll get there. The minute you turn 18, you need to be going to college. You need to be moving out of your parents' home. You like, you need to be building your life at 18. And I latch onto that because that was probably the biggest fraud that was done in the country. That was probably the biggest wrong that was sold. I don't Specifically, even, I'm going to I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if it was wrong. It was just never backed up when everything failed. That's then that's what I was going to get at. Specifically because I don't think the country was able to process quickly enough how much had changed due to the recession and how much was about to change in life. Yeah. We went into one of the longest wars in our history. Like a lot of pieces came up and this idea that you had to be independent and build your nuclear family and do all of those those caveats to be successful never switched to, well, it's also important to be able to put food on the table and to be able to have money and secure it. it yeah. The notion that at 18 you had to go to college and then figure out your life was such a burdensome thing to the to the point of um you're now looking at roughly 52% of millennials um, are living at home with their parents. Yeah. Such a, an outrageous number, but when you really think about it, that is a, a survival technique. When you're not making wages that can support rent, that can support yeah. utilities, living at home with your parents, maybe you give them a few extra dollars or maybe you help them with utilities. I don't want to get into that argument. But when you're living at home with your parents, you're able to build up and secure additional funding so that you can move out and do something else with your life. I do think that the millennial generation was never given the opportunity to understand that living at home with your parents isn't uh, emblematic of you being a failure. Um, you staying at home or in your state close to family isn't emblematic of being a failure. There were these notions of how things used to be, and we're seeing the repercussions of that per- um, protrude through the millennial generation, through Gen Z, all of these spaces of really, truly, we should have been having a more educated conversation of what does it look like to not follow the nuclear path? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think about it, a lot of millennials are right around the age where you're going to have a kid or you're not going to have a kid. And a lot of them can't do it. And like, there's a couple, <laughs> there's a couple kind of funny repercussions not, I guess, funny, funny in an ironic sense. Yeah. Um, you, there was a little above the fold piece we had about maybe a year ago uh, when the census came out and the population was, I don't remember, was it kind of stagnant or going down a little bit? It went down a little bit. And I explicitly said, look out because the U.S. government is about to push heavy for more tax incentives and more reasons for younger generations to have kids. And was I right? I mean, you did get some child tax credit. Um, you had some, I, I, you know what? I don't feel like it's been in my face because I haven't, um, I just genuinely haven't seen it that much. But I will say that I 
I have noticed that they have been subtly hinting at that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, if you want the U.S. population to grow, if you want us to have kids, um, then then why didn't you back up your fucking promises mm. a decade ago? And even now, I mean, I think the response to the pandemic um, in terms of like uh, economics was was better. But it, at the end of the day, like when when we feel like the pandemic is over at a national level, which arguably we're getting there already, um, it's just going to be what it was right beforehand. And right beforehand, we were arguably still kind of in this state of we're better than when the recession hit, but it's been so slow. And so it's also also I, I did want to touch on I had a kind of a random thought about how there's a labor shortage in the US right now. And a lot of that is actually because I'd argue a lot of that is from that promise of you get a college degree, you will that's the American dream, you'll make a lot, you'll be able to pay off your debts. You know, it's all great, you know, and then we didn't back it up. But like, a lot of people don't get technical degrees anymore because of that shit. Correct. And that's why we have a fucking labor shortage. God, I can talk to my dad who's in the construction business and and he'll tell you that there's a huge labor shortage in terms of those kind of services like plumbing and electricians yeah. and stuff. And like, again, we we set up this narrative that those type of jobs aren't a part of those type the of, American dream. And honestly, longer. those type of jobs, they pay very well if you're into that shit. Yeah. Like they're, they're good jobs to have. They really are. I mean, I've, I've, I was never um, super into it, but like, but also we can have a real true conversation that trade schools and, and trade jobs are important to the functionality of a society. And yeah, we can't keep this facade up that those jobs aren't important or, average Americans can just learn how to do it themselves because at no point in human history have average uh, Americans just done it themselves. Yeah. There's like, literally, there's literally like a whole genre of fucking internet videos of people trying to do shit themselves and utterly failing so hard. It's funny. And that's a very important piece here of, we are seeing a lot of repercussions of this notion of what the American dream look like with a college education with all of these pieces and the importance that we as a country do need to take a step back and evaluate that that was an unrealistic, um, unequitable, unfair view of how this country should be. Everyone shouldn't feel the pressure to go to college. Everyone shouldn't feel the need to be making or being in a specific space, but everyone should have the opportunity to have a life where they are secure and stable in their country. And that's a piece that I don't know we are ever going to address. I, I don't think that as you were highlighting the whole notion of having a new normal seemed like it had an opportunity to have those conversations and seemed like it had a, a chance to shift the, the um, paradigm and instead we have very quickly gone back to, well, this is how we did it. Well, that's the thing too, is like, I, I would argue that like, like I agree with you, but I, I would argue that, that it, we, there was a shift to the conversation a little bit. Yeah. And like a lot of those programs and stuff and policies that like, like the Biden administration was having that conversation. And in fact, 48 out of 50 <laughs> democratic senators were having that conversation too. Like, just think about the child tax credit. Think about that. And then, 
fucking it just got blown up by like two senators mm-hmm. who weren't into it weren't into a price tag and it's like yeah, one senator oh but it, it yeah that that's true that's true and like i don't know it it might be back on the drawing board now i don't know i don't i'm not i have zero expectation but like i just you take half of the fucking children in america out of child poverty then put them right back in and you put them right back in because one person didn't like the price tag of the bill it's just we need to get out of our own fucking heads here like we gotta fucking stick up our butt (laughs) i i just it just angers me a little bit because like i agree we've kind of gone back to it even though we have almost almost enough lovers of our government were there to do it and they are for like six more months potentially more i don't know about that we'll see um but before midterms is what i mean but i just i don't know it seemed like like it's good that we're shift that the conversation has shifted towards that a little bit but it just we fell right back into a place where it's just not happening and it's like the worst time where it wouldn't happen you know we're still in a pandemic at the end of the day yeah jobs are still the market is is weird the market's weird right now for yeah. jobs so like i just I don't know. I don't know. I, I, we've had this conversation plenty, right? I, it I'm it not, is important that more individuals lift this up, and it's also important that more individuals don't fall prey to what politics is feeding us right now. It a lot of millennial and Gen Zers are in the progressive wing wanting these big substantive changes and view anything less than that as a failure, which is fair because this country has always been slow to progress. However, because (laughs) of that, we've allowed for one half of our political system to be dead on arrival. Anytime we're having these conversations, we already expect for the other half of our political system to either shame it, not want to do it, or not even bring it up. And that puts an unnecessary burden on the other half of our political system to try to push things through or try to live up to these big aspirations without an understanding of where our political system is and how we move forward. And I I keep coming back to that American dream piece because that is where we need to start. We need to start by changing the narrative of what it looks like to be successful in this country, what it looks like to uh, to be f- important to this country. And in doing so, we need to start shifting that narrative for the other half of the system that will lean in into the American dream and say, well, we're just trying to get people there. They don't need government to be the nuclear family with a white picket fence. If we take our hands off, they'll figure it out. When in all actuality, as we've talked about in this pod, the government does need to be there because that is why government exists. It exists for the people that created it. It is the body politic, as um, many philosophers have highlighted. And if we can start changing that paradigm and really talking about those pieces, we can start seeing both parties have better conversations, at least in my optimistic world. I'm not even like in terms of the millennials, the the hand they've been dealt and stuff. I'm not advocating that the government says, okay, here's a bunch of money and you can live your life without a job or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's not even what I'm advocating for. 
I'm advocating for when things are out of control so much, the U.S. government to actually like lend a helping hand or back up their claims, even in hard times. And that just didn't happen for a whole entire generation. And you're right. It was a once in a lifetime. Um, Everything. Yeah. Recession and now pandemic. And, and I mean that, that helping hand from the government, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's similar to me actually as the minimum wage argument. Minimum wage was there to keep your head just above water so you could get some experience and get a better job. Mm -hmm. And it was like that for a while. And it hasn't been for a long time now, a couple of decades at least. Yeah. And federal probably limit only functions off of milk, bread and other quote unquote essentials, but it hasn't been um, adjusted to inflation ever. So our, our federal poverty limit is genuinely the bare minimum you could have to buy basic things, not including housing. So yes, like, well, just that's as you thing. mentioned. It used to be changed a lot because of inflation and it hasn't been changed in like 15 or 16 years. Yep. And it's like, why did that change? And, but, but that's obviously minimum wage is a different conversation. My point is, is that, is that if you, like, there's just a part of part of America that used to kind of believe that like, it was okay to do a little bit of a push to help people out at the very least mm-hmm. to make sure that they weren't being exploited, you know? And that just seems to have disappeared. That's what it really feels like. And, and, and the millennials just happen to be like the first generation to really get the full blunt of that is my argument. And so, so when people are like, oh, gener- millennials are lazy and you got to pay off your debts and stuff. Of course you do. But Where's all the, the stuff, that? all the promises that were made, all of what was once true in America isn't anymore. And so how the fuck do you fucking go from there? <laughs> like, that's, I think that's the argument there. And, it, and it's really out of a lot of millennials control. And we'll be right back. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerously likely at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our new episodes. How about you take us on a tangent, Caleb? Okay, so my tangent this week is still going to be about video games. Sorry, everybody who hates video games, but I don't know what else to talk about. Fuck. Um. <laughs> And this time it's going to center around Halo Infinite and just my slight annoyance with some of the community of gamers for Halo Infinite. (laughs) Um, Halo Infinite, first of all, the Halo franchise, you may have heard of it. They just came out with a TV show that is probably mediocre. Um, But uh, the Halo games have been out for over 20 years now. And honestly, fantastic storyline. Even if you don't like video games, the storytelling of those games are just exquisite. They're really good. So Halo Infinite, which is the first game in like six or seven years, um, comes out uh, last November. And it comes out like there was a lot of excitement around it. You know, I played it. You know, it's free to play. Really fun. I still love it, honestly. It's great gameplay. Um, It feels good. And 
The problem, though, is that a lot of other Halo games have all this different content and all these different features, like like maps, um, game modes, and multiplayer, uh, more campaign and stuff. And Halo Infinite just didn't have all the stuff that you're normal you're used to seeing in a Halo game. And a lot of people, especially after the first month or two, after the excitement had died down a little bit, were like pretty upset by that. And I that's fair. That's totally fair. Um, but like. It's just turned into this absolute, maybe I'm just an optimistic person here, but every time that I see like any conversation on Twitter or social media about Halo, people are so fucking mad and they think that the company behind Halo is the worst company in the world and they they can never do anything right. And I'm like, I'm sitting here like, okay, I understand the frustration, but like, it's just turning outright kind of disgusting and kind of gross in terms of the criticism. And I'm like, I'm like, first of all, try playing a different game. I know the only game you play, the only game you play is fucking Halo, which is great. Go play a fucking different game. <laughs> like, here's the thing is I didn't play Halo for a solid two month period. But if you remember me talking about Elden Ring last night, I was playing a different game called Elden Ring. And now I, I've played Halo a little bit the last couple of days and shit, it's fun, even though it doesn't have all the content you'd expect. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things where it's like the company will figure it out. It'll take some time. I know when a game comes out, it should come out completed and in a place where it's ready to go. And this one didn't. But, you know, all of these players are going to play it when more shit comes out. So I'm just tired of seeing so much negativity around this. I just want to see like the side of the community that's like enjoying the game. And it's just like hard to see. It just kind of goes in my whole tangent with like Twitter and social media in general, how it just feels so negative all the time. Not, not, not the, uh, just don't come for Twitter. That's my spot. Well, I mean, <laughs> a lot of the things that I look up on Twitter, I, I, there's just negative. It's just a lot of negativity. It's like one, one person says what their view of something is and they're the fucking Nazi to one person right away in the comments. And it's like, it's like, look, you know, if the guy said something that's like white supremacist, like, yeah, call it out. But most of the time, it's not that. It's just, let's have a debate. And Twitter could be a good debate space. And I feel like most of the time there's a debate, there's always shit like that. It's just fucking, it hurts my head a little bit. Anyways, that was, that was, I think, the true form of a tangent. Go on, Trail. <laughs> it's your turn. <laughs> you sound personally offended by all of that. <laughs> I don't every tangent I have is just so niche that I don't know if it's worth the time. Um, I'll just do a rapid fire of suggestions. Kate Cunningham should be rookie of the year. If you disagree, take that somewhere else. Cause you're just an NBA, right? Yeah. You're just wrong. He's by far the best rookie in the game right now and has successfully brought the Detroit Pistons back to a national conversation of what they could be. Um, If you're one of the progressives that I was talking about earlier in our main segment, that's thinking about not voting during the midterms because you're so mad at the Democrats, you're an idiot and you need to be voting for Democrats because having Republicans own the Senate and the house will be significantly worse to progress. And I'm kind of tired of trying to understand that argument and be friendly about it. I have a lot of frustrations that we as a country are willing to give Republicans the pass when they 
stopped us on the child care tax credit when they almost unanimously voted against the first black woman to the Supreme Court after hijacking the Supreme Court under the president before the last one, um, when they aren't even coming to the negotiating table for how to keep the Affordable Care Act around, when the minority leader for the House has already come out and said that he's going to spend his first months in power reinvestigating Benghazi just for the fun of putting Hillary Clinton through that turmoil. Like, I don't understand the rationale or the perspective to think that it is smart to either not vote during the midterms or to actively try to vote against Democrats during the midterms. If you really care about equity, if you really care about inclusion, if you really care about any type of progress, you are actively voting against your own rights. And it just, it irritates me and it really makes me pissed off. So that's going to be my tangent, actually. I'm going to leave it at that. Vote Democrat. I kind of want to add something there. Hit it. You know, to all the to all the progressives that Terrell has identified here, and I don't know, maybe there are none that listen to this podcast, but I'm sure there's one or two. <laughs> I I think that like in the last decade, I think you have a lot to be proud of. I mean, progressives are more in the conversation than they've ever been before, or at least the people that you claim to support, like Bernie and whatnot. They you know they have a little bit more control. I mean not control per se, but they have more people in Congress. They're at the table. They're at the table. I mean, Bernie was at the table for all of these infrastructure stuff. Like I know that, I don't know. In reality, you can't necessarily expect someone like a Bernie Sanders to win the first time he goes around or even the second time. But you know, we might have a Bernie Sanders type candidate in the next couple presidential elections and they might win. Like that's, that's how they have, um, that's how you all have shifted the country in one way or another. But here's the deal. Like I know people who are just like, if it's not Bernie Sanders, then I'm not voting. And you're right, Terrell, that gives Republicans a pass. That gives a pass for all the things that you, especially those people who think that way hate about the country. And it's like, look, I'm not asking you to love a Democrat. I'm not asking you to, um, I don't know, agree with all their policies and stuff, but holy shit, most of their policies can be built on once you get your candidate in, if that happens soon. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's flabbergasting. Like you hate this country more and more. And a lot of it is because you're not voting for the right people. Yeah. And it's just, it's, I'm going to stick with idiocracy. It's idiotic to think that just because your candidate might not have made it out of the primaries or isn't um, going to be able to to have the kind of sway that you were hoping for, it's idiotic to think that the better alternative is getting a conservative into Congress right now when they are actively passing legislation at state levels against trans youth when they're actively limiting voting rights for all Americans, when they're actively pushing narratives of it is inappropriate to teach children about the truth of this country and not just gloss over Andrew Johnson, who a hundred percent is the only reason like (laughs) it's all of these pieces, right? That I don't care that your candidate didn't make it 
these elections matter for the livelihood of millions of Americans. These elections matter for how this country continues to get better. And we don't have the same conversation 10, 20 years ago. These conversations matter for the survival of this country. And um, like, I'm sure we have a couple of conservatives who listen to this and I very often will make arguments for. I'm glad you listen, by the way. I think it's an interesting conversation to have if you ever just reach out to us, if you want to disagree. Right. Uh, And I'll, I'll, often make conversations for conservative conservatives, but we can't ignore the fact that this conservative party is more emblematic of the tea party than it is of the GOP of our formative years. And the tea party has never been anything less than an extremist group. That is an existential threat to people of differences of white folk. Um, So yeah, if you're listening, vote, it's important. Well, I think that's our show. Thank you for listening. I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Terrell Couch. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week.